Hey, y'all. Good morning. My name is Brandon, and it is so good to see y'all. Y'all came back after last week. This is really fun. Uh, but if you're still worshiping at home with us, God bless you as well, and welcome uh, to you as well. We're in Luke 24 for the next three weeks in the same story, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But you may have noticed my friend Zach, who's walking around with a really nice camera, and uh, he's just getting some shots for a video or two that we're making to uh, help uh, let more and more people know in our immediate area what we're doing here and what is going on because we're really excited about it. I think Atticus's video, so well done, is enough proof uh, to, to show that we are excited about what is going on here. So I um, hope that's okay that he's getting some, some still shots of the, the room as we lift high the name of Jesus together. We are talking about gospel conversations over the next three weeks specifically. And that's an important uh, term for our church. It's not one that I used ever before I came to be the pastor at the church at Harpeth Heights. Uh, But it's one that I had been, it's something that I had been doing for years. And if I'm honest with you, it to always try to be, we pastors have a call story that brought us to the point where we realized that God was asking us to be in vocational ministry, whatever that's going to look like. And for me, it was completely wrapped up in what I understand a gospel conversation to be. From a young age, I um, gravitated because of my formation in the church. My father's a pastor as well. I gravitated toward um, evangelism. I loved Jesus at a young age and uh, wondered every time I met somebody, whether they love Jesus as well. And if, you know, continuing to be honest, at times in my life that manifested itself in some unhealthy ways and patterns, I believe, but I think I'm on a better track now, and uh, it ebbs and flows uh, with our own journey. We'll talk more about that as we go. But I I was telling the, the team that we get, you know, Oksana and our team before, If there's a a theme for the next three weeks that I hope comes out of this story, this text that we're in, it would be that we would all be encouraged in that way to to care even more deeply about whether or not, just what Oksana said to set up the offertory time, whether or not someone knows Jesus and to be compelled to figure that out sometimes over a span of four years. Right, Atticus? Praise God, brother. It's really cool. Really cool. So we're a church that highly values gospel conversations and encourages them. Oksana alluded to the 500,000 that we're trying to get to over the next little while amongst all of our regional campuses. Now, don't get psyched out by that number. That is an internal uh, figure. We do not want you jumping into those conversations saying, hey, Can I talk to you for a minute? Our church is trying to get to a half million of these conversations. And I'd really like to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ today so that we can count it toward that number. Please don't do that. In fact, the last thing that a gospel conversation should be is quick. It should be genuine. It should be straight from your heart. It should be organic, I believe. And I honestly don't think... There is any particular formula that we can give you. Although we try to give some best practices, we have gospel conversation training, 
which I think is done really well. But even more than the, any class we can put together to teach us about it is, is our opportunity we have to crowdsource. Are you familiar with that term? As a local church. And just bring our best practices to one another. This is a very internal project, if you will. And we need to be constantly seeking out how to refine the way we try to help communicate the gospel with those who honestly, oftentimes have never heard it, y'all. And we'll get to that more. But I'm meeting people more and more in our Bible Belt city, this conglomeration of folks from all over our country and world who have not yet heard the good news of Jesus. And so to engage them with the whole gospel is of utmost importance. Now, we do define gospel conversations as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost and searching and trusting the Holy Spirit with the results. So we're going to be looking at Luke 24 for the next three weeks, uh, where I think you could argue the first gospel conversation was, was had, or at least one of the first. So we'll start in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 35. This is a good story, but buckle up. Now that same day, this is just after Jesus' resurrection, so this is all happening, you know, together. A lot of chronology here. Quick. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, arguing, it's encouraging somehow. Anyway, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what's the dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb. And when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Exhale. He said to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it. And gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight, and they said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them gathered, who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road, And how he was made known to them in the breaking 
of bread. May God add God's blessing to the reading of his word. So it was eight years ago, early March, about a month ago, eight years ago, and I remember it well. My dad and I and our, son, our oldest son, Howell, who was five at the time, we went downtown to watch the OVC men's basketball championship game between the good guys, Belmont Bruins, and the loathsome Murray State Racers. And I remember it so well because it was one of the nights that we actually got, we beat Murray State, and we got to go to the NCAA tournament, and this was a great game, y'all. Our point guard at the time, Karan Johnson, who was a great point guard for Belmont for four years, he made a shot, if my memory serves me correctly, he made a shot at the end of regulation to tie the game, send it in overtime, and then he made another shot at the end of overtime to seal the victory for us to take a two-point victory. And what I remember most about that night was leaving the uh, auditor- municipal auditorium. And we left it with a crowd of Belmont fans. And Belmont's a small community, so it was a lot of folks that we, we knew, but it was also folks that we didn't know very well. But we all, you know, you've had this experience when you leave a good ball game or a play or something that was just an experience for everybody there, and you leave. And what do you do? Talk about it even with strangers. And we were going over the events of the game all along the downtown streets as we went away so excited to have won. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, connected with the story, my understanding is is that Jewish travelers leaving Jerusalem after Passover, it would not be uncommon for another party or individual to join together with their party and walk for several miles even if they were strangers. And they would talk about the experiences, particularly this time around when things were so charged over Passover in Jerusalem. So here our fellows, Cleopas and his friend, are joined by Jesus, who is an apparent stranger. And this is worth our consideration because if we read the whole text all the way through 35 and we see at the end that Cleopas and his friend go to the disciples to tell of their experience with Jesus. So it stands to reason that these are they're at least close with the disciples or traveled with them or a part of the extended party, so they would have known Jesus. So to not recognize Jesus on the road is worth our consideration. Like there's something going on there. Why did they not recognize him? Well, if we look at verse 16, we see what the text says, that they were actually prevented from recognizing him. Did you notice that? It's interesting. And it brings to mind for me back in chapter 9, around verse 45, we, well, we see Luke telling us for the second time what Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples about what would eventually befall him in Jerusalem at the end of his life. Well, let's just look at the text. Verse 44 in chapter 9 says, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Verse 45. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, it's important for us to realize this morning, I think, that Jesus is known to us through revelation. Do you see that? There's a point in your life which we saw demonstrated in Atticus' story with his friend, there's a point in our lives where we realize God is our king, Jesus is his son, and we are going to follow and be formed by Jesus. Do you see that? In that 
moment, if it's a moment for you or if it's over a period of moments, that is a gift given to us by God, God's self. There's more going on here in this story than the men simply being silly and not recognizing someone they should have recognized or not finding his voice familiar. Perhaps they weren't ready to really hear and absorb what was being told them. The disciples back in Luke 9 and our men here on the road to Emmaus, it wasn't the right time. Maybe they wouldn't have been able to handle it yet. Maybe they wouldn't have been able to properly care for the information. God deserves the right to make those determinations. God does make those determinations. And Luke is demonstrating to us in this story and really throughout the entire gospel that God makes those determinations. Now, what can we glean from that that I think is helpful, encouraging to us? Well, you're okay. Wherever you are on your journey, and I try to tell you this in a variety of different ways because I'm trying to tell myself this because I get frustrated with my own journey at times. It's okay. God still has you. The only place we are supposed to be, I think, is further along. And sure, we'll regress at times. Life is hard. But we are to be further along in our journey with Jesus. That's what, okay, so that, that applies to our own story, our own faith. Now, transfer it to what we're thinking about when we're trying to communicate our story of faith with someone so that they'll have their own story of faith. And that's where we get the phrase in our definition for gospel conversations, trusting the Holy Spirit with the results. Are you with me there? The fact that God is revealed to us and God makes that determination, helps free us up to have these conversations with confidence, but not feeling like we carry the weight of the result of these conversations. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean we don't try really hard to communicate well and lovingly and use best practices, but we also don't get hung up on the immediate results. God is still working on all of us. We'll see that as we continue with this story. Um, it, it sets up what I tried to communicate well last week that we saw with the women at the tomb when they remembered what Jesus had said based on the testimony of the angels that they encountered at the tomb. They remembered. Well, what Luke is trying to get across here is there's going to come a point in our lives when we remember. And if we trust what we're reading here, that point is going to coincide when God determines we are ready to remember, when we can handle the information. That's what I'm seeing here. I think Scripture memorization works similarly. I would encourage you to memorize Scripture because I believe you hide it in your heart, and, and it comes up when we need it in a wonderful, often miraculous way. We remember at the proper time. And again, we'll see this as we continue with this story. So they're traveling with who they think is a stranger. And what ensues and what I want us to see ensues is a gospel conversation. Now, our gospel conversations, I believe, need to include our faith story and how our faith story intersects with God's faith story, God's story, which if we, I like how Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the wonderful uh, Jesus' storybook Bible puts it, that the Bible itself is first and foremost a story. A story about a king who has come 
to rescue his people. And this time of year, the last couple of weeks, Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, and then last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we have looked closely together and we have tried to encourage and remind one another of exact, you know, what this story, what this rescue operation looks like. And what we have here is two men talking with Jesus and they don't know it. And what they're giving Jesus is actually a really poor testimony. They are communicating a story quite passionately. They've been arguing about it amongst themselves. And they're giving him an account of the events of the week before like they understood them. And we know it's important to them. It's fresh on their mind. It's what they're discussing. Just like it was important to us as we left the basketball game to talk about the events of the game. They are talking about the events of the previous week. They're talking about the rumors that Jesus is alive. They're talking about uh, the misfortune, as they characterize it, the unfortunate events that rendered Jesus dead when they said they, by the, at the hands of the religious leaders and the Roman authorities, and when they thought that he was going to be the Messiah that came to make everything better. But the fact that they see it as unfortunate reveals that they don't understand that this is actually what had happened. They see Jesus as another would-be Messiah that had come and his death rendered him not the Messiah. But this is understandable, y'all. I heard it said last week leading up to Easter that the only thing more frightening than a world without Jesus in it for those who knew him and followed him and were associated with him would be a world that Jesus was actually still in because they were running for their lives at this point. Enough of a ruckus had been caused that those associated with Jesus were being tracked down just like Jesus was. It's not a surprise that they had all abandoned him by the time he was hanging on the cross, except for those extraordinary women. They were still there. The disciples were preserving their lives. But before we cast stones, let's be honest about how we would handle that. I had wondered for years how I would handle a situation if it ever came about where I could, you know, be the hero. And I know this was stemming from when I was a young boy and I was shoe shopping with my mom at Binkley's Shoe Shop in Springfield, Tennessee, a little storefront, downtown Springfield, splendid little store. It's probably not still there, but I remember it well. And we were in the store shopping for some sweet LA gears, if you remember that brand, for me. And there were two older teenage boys in the shop and then the clerks, the owners, and my mom and I. And the boys were trying on new tennis shoes and one of them jumped, they had them on, and one of them jumped up to the door and said, hey, there's so-and-so. And they both ran and they bolted with those shoes. And I remember I was young, but I remember I, I could sense the frustration on the, owner, the, the shop owner and I, I processed what had happened and I realized, oh my goodness, those guys just stole those shoes. And I saw the store owner just take off. This was a middle-aged man and he was going to catch them. I don't know if he caught them or not. Maybe the boys got away with the shoes, but I remembered that moment. And I remember thinking, you know, it'd been really cool if I'd tripped them, stopped them. But I was on the other side of the store and I couldn't really get to it. I was pretty sure that I would have if I had had, you know, been in closer proximity. So fast forward to college years and I get my opportunity. My buddy Andy and I are eating at a CC's pizza. Don't know if those are a thing anymore, but they used to be. And we used to eat way too much pizza when we go to a CC's pizza. And we paid at the register when we finished and we were getting ready to, we were walking out the door and somebody had walked in, but there were like two sets of doors. So they were kind of away from us and y'all, they were robbing the shop. 
with a weapon. And I was, you know, like, this is my moment, right? To, to, to come to, you know, to make good on what I'd always wondered I would do in such a situation. And so I'm about six feet from the guys with the weapon. And what, what I thought would happen if I was ever in that position is I would just take off, you know, put my right foot in the ground and just, you know, spear them from behind and be holding them down and then given the opportunity for other patrons to come and hold them down as well. And then a few minutes later, News Channel 5 would be there and I'd be getting interviewed. <laughs> and behind me while I'm doing the interview, the, the, the robber would be being put in the cop car, you know, and I would say something really brilliant like, you know, I was just doing what anybody else would have done <laughs> in that situation. That's not what happened. <laughs> I ran behind CeCe's Pizza and waited for it all to unfold. And I'm really disappointed about that to this day, but I'm pretty sure the robber got away with the cash and I was of no help or consequence that day. <laughs> Thank you for indulging my story. It was true, true story. Uh, this is how the disciples and many others on the periphery traveling with the disciples handled Jesus' death. They protected themselves. They fled. They sought anonymity. Even Peter, who we think was as close with Jesus as anybody, said, I don't know him when he was asked. But now, after his resurrection... Y'all, Jesus doesn't hold that against them whatsoever. He appears to many of those who follow him and he engages them with the gospel. And it seems through these stories in Luke and the other gospels, the appearance stories that we have of Jesus, it seems they're ready to hear it. It seems they're, they're ready to receive it in a way that sticks with them, in a way that informs their beliefs and their behavior moving forward. He did not appear to people who did not yet know him. It would have been too much, I think. Hey, let me tell you this story about me raising from the dead. We talked about it last week. People don't do that. But this had been a long hard, incredibly meaningful ministry with these disciples where Jesus had prepared them for such a time as this. And now he was making good on it, even though they abandoned him. And he was telling them what they really already knew in their hearts. And they were remembering it. And in this story, we see two that may have been on the periphery, Cleopas and his friend, but we see them remember as well through Jesus taking the time to tell them. They, they, y'all, they encounter Jesus and they become two folks who cannot help but testify to what they've heard and seen. Do you see that? And that's what I want from us. That's what I want from me is that we are folks that just can't help but testify to what we've heard and seen. And sure, we don't have the luxury of having people in our lives who were there a part of Jesus' resurrection appearances. I get it. It's been 2,000 years. But I remember about the same time that I failed so miserably at that CC's Pizza, I was, well, I'm still good friends with him, but I had, I had a great friend who would have told you he had just recently, at this time, come to faith, decided to follow and be formed by Jesus. And he asked me one day, he said, Brandon, how do you, how do you stay confident in what you believe? How do you not be 
overcome with doubts. He was experiencing doubts even in his infancy as a follower of Jesus. And I, I admit at the time, I had not, it was a very poignant question. While I had this desire birthed in me, I believe, grace from God, to, to see, to know, to help people come to a relationship with Jesus, I wondered if they knew Jesus. I had not considered very much in my life up to that point why, why I was confident in God's story. I hadn't thought about it much. But my answer to him that day, I'll tell you, is the same answer I have today. While on one hand, I know that it was revealed to me by Jesus and that I have been saved by faith. I get so much encouragement from you and your story. It's those who are also following and being formed by Jesus around me that gives me confidence in my faith. It's rooted in those who've gone before me, gone around me, those lives I have been blessed to see fervently follow and be formed by Jesus. It is your testimony of faith that encourages me. So own it. Live it. So much of your ability to organically and genuinely have a gospel conversation is going to be rooted in how you carry yourself in the truth of the gospel day in and day out. For what we do with our days, how we do this together, this life of faith, that is the stuff that makes up our gospel conversations. Jesus explained the gospel to Cleopas and his friend. And they went away with faith. They went away forever changed. Now our lives must do the same. Let's pray.